The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. LinkedIn presents. Throughout our history, we have chosen to provide ample opportunity to a subset of our residents, largely the white and already affluent, and to deny opportunity to the rest. Nowhere is this clearer than in our country's tortured history with black slaves and indigenous people. Hi, I'm Michael Kovnett, and this is the Next Big Idea Daily. It's February, and as Black History Month kicks off, it might be a good time to ask, is America a post-racial society? Many of us like to think so, but that myth and similar ones may be holding our country back, both morally and economically, according to Jeff Fuhrer, author of The Myth That Made Us, how false beliefs about racism and meritocracy broke our economy and how to fix it. Jeff is a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution and a foundation fellow for the Eastern Bank Foundation. He previously served as Director of Research, Executive Vice President, and Senior Policy Advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. Here's Jeff to share some big ideas from his book. Over the past 15 years, through a variety of personal and professional experiences, I had the privilege to get to know many residents in low-income communities and communities of color. From that exposure came a growing sense that I needed to better understand the reasons behind the vast disparities we see in wealth and income in the U.S., disparities across race, ethnicity, and class. The more I learned, the more distressed I became by the realization that our economy, or our country, has been designed to deliver precisely those disparities. Throughout our history, we have chosen to provide ample opportunity to a subset of our residents, largely the white and already affluent, and to deny opportunity to the rest. Nowhere is this clearer than in our country's tortured history with black slaves and indigenous people. But it extends to tens of millions of others who simply have not been provided the chance to succeed, and that includes a large number of lower-income white families. Critically, the choices we've made about who receives opportunity and who doesn't are mightily influenced by a set of narratives that are deeply embedded within our nation's culture and history. So let's start with the narrative about the role that race plays in our economy. In 1968, 55 years ago, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. said, and I quote, at the very same time that the government refused to give the Negro any land through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did they give the land, they built land-grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. Not only that, they provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. Not only that, today, many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to farm. And they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. Now, when we come to Washington in this campaign, we're coming to get our check. That's the end of the quotation. I want to emphasize two takeaways from this powerful speech. First, Dr. King recognized 55 years ago the ways in which our government had created, through institutional discrimination, a highly favorable and government-supported economy for white farmers, denying the same to people of color. That's the check he says black Americans are coming to get, the one that white farmers already got many times over. 
While many remember the I Have a Dream speech, fewer remember this more incisive analysis of how our government created and supported a racially divided economy. It is likely that he was murdered for this message, a message as relevant today as it was in 1968. The second takeaway? This speech makes it clear that the effects of government and nationwide economic discrimination are perpetrated over generations and last for generations afterward. Economic discrimination continues, and the effects of current and previous discrimination are with us today, as evidenced by the enormous gaps in wealth, health care provision, incarceration, and income, to name a few. The book describes my journey from ignorance of the full effects of systemic racism to greater knowledge to a sense of outrage about this part of our history. I hope the book will inspire more to embark on such a journey and soon to join the swelling call for change. Now to the widespread narrative about how businesses are supposed to operate. According to that model, businesses are responsible solely for maximizing profits, or roughly the same, making their shareholders richer. And note that I'm talking primarily here about large companies that have shareholders. In service of this narrative, companies have restrained wage growth, limited health and child care benefits, outsourced jobs to third-party providers, distanced workers from their employers, and reduced the opportunity to advance, all in the name of keeping profits high and shareholders happy. And the largest corporations have indeed maximized profits. Profits are currently at or near historic highs. And you know, I'd worry somewhat less about that if accumulated profits were used for productive, innovative, and life-enhancing purposes, and some are. But of the $2.5 trillion in profits accrued last year, more than $1 trillion was used to buy back company shares, to artificially prop up stock prices. Well, who benefits from that? The wealthy, who own shares. Who loses? Workers. I believe strongly that there's a moral implication here. How can you, as the CEO of a highly profitable company, send your employees home with so little pay that they can't survive without the help of government benefits, such as food stamps and housing assistance? And just as bad, this corporate behavior means that other taxpayers, and that's you and I, as a consequence must subsidize the labor costs of large corporations. As taxpayers, we fund much-needed government programs that are required precisely because they pick up the slack that corporations leave behind by paying such low wages and offering such poor benefits. Given the way large corporations behave, I'm more than happy to pay my share of these essential benefits, which keep many families alive, but I'm not happy that corporations benefit from this implicit welfare while walking away with astounding profits. This business narrative has created a mess, a disaster for millions of American workers. The narrative and the system need to change. Then there's the meritocracy narrative. You know, everyone gets exactly what they deserve according to their effort. This narrative has wildly distorted our conception of the poor. If everyone gets what he deserves, well, then the poor deserve their poverty. Clearly, they are poor because they didn't work hard enough, they're lazy, and they've made bad decisions, which is quite simply false. Instead, history and data tell us poverty largely results from differences in race, ethnicity, gender, and inherited family resources. But our country loves to blame the poor for their plight. What would struggling families do if we offered them more support? Squander it? Well, the narrative says yes, but history and data say no. The poor are among our very hardest workers. They are remarkably skillful in stewarding their resources, because they have to be. How do they spend money they receive? On what we all have to, food and, and diapers and other necessities. To believe otherwise is to be willfully ignorant of the data and history concerning the poor. 
Blaming the poor for their poverty has shaped our government's safety net programs, leaving them minimal, stingy, distrustful of recipients, always suspicious of abuse in spite of the evidence. As a nation, we have left tens of millions struggling to survive in spite of their hard work, determination, and persistence. We prefer to believe it's their fault rather than acknowledge our nation's responsibility for their lack of opportunity. A final point. In most discussions of poverty, the focus is on income inequality, that is the difference between very high and low incomes. But I'm even more concerned about the absolutely low level of incomes, especially relative to any reasonable estimate of the cost of essentials. As my grad school advisor Ben Friedman of Harvard says, no one worries that the lowest paid major league baseball player makes only 1% of the star ball player's pay. Why? Well, because the lowest major league baseball salaries are really high, currently about $720,000 per year. Sure, the inequality is large, but the high level of all baseball salaries makes concern about inequality a bit silly. Well, in stark contrast, I worry a lot about the family of four who lives on $55,000 per year, roughly double the poverty level. Not so much because they make only 1% of the top earners in the country, but because unlike baseball players, their incomes are just incredibly low. In fact, they're so low that the data show clearly that these families can't afford to meet basic expenses anywhere in the country, even after accounting for government supports. Of course, income inequality matters, but painfully low incomes matter much more. This basic idea that how we as a nation think about the causes of wealth and income disparities has dramatically shaped how the economy works is critical. We've chosen an economy that wildly benefits the white and wealthy and leaves behind tens of millions of others. Those choices have been fueled by the myths of meritocracy, post-racism, the profit-maximizing firm, and, and free markets. There may be some truth to some of those myths, but by and large, they are poor descriptions of reality that have motivated us to become a stingy nation with an uninformed view of the lives and challenges of families of color and of the poor. Thank you, Jeff. Everyone, that's it for today. I'll be back tomorrow with some big ideas from Goodbye Perfect, how to stop pleasing, proving, and pushing for others and live for yourself. I'm Michael Kovnat. See you tomorrow.